Well, last week we looked at Psalm 20. And one of the things I've been encouraging you to do is read one of the Psalms in the morning and read the Psalm following that we're going to preach on the following week in the, in the evenings. And so in the mornings uh, this week, it's going to be, sorry, the morning this week, it'll be Psalm 21, which I'm preaching on this morning. And the next week, the Psalm's going to be Psalm 44. And you're going to see some, some similar themes there. And so uh, be, be reading that. But last week, we looked at actually Psalm 20. And then this week, we're going to look at Psalm 21. Now, this doesn't work with all of the Psalms, but I tried to make a point last week is that the Psalms aren't just in random order. Sometimes it can feel like the Psalms are in random order because it's not a narrative. It's not a letter, like maybe Paul writes a letter to the churches, and so it's going, it feels like a letter. Uh, it feels a little more like thrown together, but actually it's not necessarily thrown together. It's actually structured. And so very, very frequently, actually, if you're reading one of the Psalms, if you read the Psalm uh, before and the Psalm after it, you'll find very similar themes. And one of the things we see in Psalm, we saw in Psalm 20 is that we see this king and somebody on behalf of the king that's calling out for the king in the day of trouble. He's getting ready to go to battle and the unknowns of battle. And, and there's, there's a call out to God before the, the, before the battle. And we saw things of like, God, would you, would you answer? God, would you protect? God, would you help? Would you send support? God, would you remember and show favor? And one of the questions I asked you last week as I asked you is like, where do you go in the day of trouble? To where do you turn? To who do you run to? To what do you seek out? And I think that the answer to that question is going to tell me a lot about you because it tells a lot about me. It tells me things of like where I think answers lie. It tells me things of like where I think my comfort will come from. I think it tells me where, where my strength is. Because when we're in the day of trouble, we run to the, the place we perceive to be our greatest strength. It lets me know where you think your deliverance comes from. And where you run to and who you run to or what you run to in the day of trouble will ultimately tell me like what you think saves you. And so last week even I said, well, you think about your last day of trouble. Maybe you're in that day of trouble right now. Where did you run to? Because where you run to was going to tell me a lot about where you think your salvation comes from. And, and we looked last week as the psalmist, the psalmist ran to God and to, to, to community. And what we're going to see this morning is we're going to see, we're going to see the other side of that, of that prayer. Now, because of the, because the ways the Psalms are structured, it's not necessarily the prayer that came after the battle. But as, as the Psalms were structured, there was Psalm 20, a prayer that was for deliverance by, for the king and the king's armies. And what we're going to see in 21 is a thanksgiving for that deliverance. So it's not necessarily, it didn't necessarily come after that battle, but when they were being structured is that they go, Psalm 20 is this prayer for deliverance. Psalm 21 is this thanking God for that deliverance. In other words, Psalm 20 is the question. Psalm 21 is the answer. God, will you save in 20? God, thank you for saving in verse 21. And so this morning, if last week was when you run to God, or if you, sorry, where do you run to in the day of trouble? Uh, this, this morning, one of the questions that should like, emanate with us would be this idea that where do we run to in the day of deliverance? Because where we run to in the day of deliverance also tells us something. 
So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 21. We're going we're gonna to start here. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices. And in your salvation, how greatly he exults. You have given him his heart's desire, and you have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. Let me read that again. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices. And in your salvation, how greatly he exults. You have given him his heart's desire, and you have not withheld the request of his lips. And so we cry out to God in the day of trouble, maybe. We turn to community in the day of trouble, maybe. My question is then, is where do you go in the day of deliverance? Do you return to him? And if all we ever do is turn to God in the day of trouble, but we never turn to him in the day of deliverance, that tells me something. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus heals ten lepers. And, 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 and as the ten lepers go to, to the priest to get cleared, because if, you if, if you were healed of leprosy, you had to go to the priest. The priest would say, yes, you're clean. And then he would, he would, he would, he would uh, signify that you were clean, and then you were clean. And so they go off. One returns to Jesus. So these ten lepers, they want to be clean. They are cleaned. The, the other nine go off. One returns to Jesus to thank him for it. And then Jesus says, you know, Jesus says, Jesus says, didn't I heal, uh, didn't I heal 10 of you guys? <laughs> yeah. Where are the other nine? And the leper thanks him. And it's interesting that Jesus says to the leper, you know what Jesus says to the leper? He says, your faith has made you well. You go, Don't, aren't, isn't faith needed for the healing? You go, yeah, faith is needed for the healing. But you know that faith is also needed for the day of deliverance as well? See, we think that just all we ever need is faith that goes into, like, so there's the day of trouble, and the day of trouble I need to have more faith in God so that God will deliver me. But I would say actually also, you actually need faith in the day of deliverance too, because this is what happens with the leper. The leper returns in faith. Why? Because he believes that it was God who healed him. And so in the day of deliverance, it's easy, it's easy to actually lose faith in the day of deliverance because in the day of deliverance, you think, isn't that nice how that worked out? Oh, yeah, what were the odds? Man, I really pulled that one together. All right, God, I didn't need you this time, but next time I'm going to save this one because this time it all worked out. Next time I'll need you. It's interesting that we, maybe you turn to God in the day of, deli- the, the day of trouble. When the day of deliverance comes along, you, you turn back to yourself. I did that. Look at that. What are the odds? I was smart. At the, at, the, at the right time, I had the right idea. What are the odds? Good. And so I go, where you turn to in the day of deliverance says something. The king here and the king's people, he re- they return to God. I've been in ministry long enough to know that there's a lot of people that just turn to God in the day of trouble. And so they'll, they'll come to church. And this is it's actually, by the way, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. They'll come to church and they'll go, things aren't going well. And we'll talk. What's going on? Tears. I just need God to intervene. Great. Good. And then, and then God intervenes. And then then they don't return to church for like six months until the next day of trouble, and then they come back, 
And what I would say is, I'm glad you came back. I really am, because it's really, really good to turn to, the go- to God in the day of trouble. But if all you're ever doing is turning to God in the day of trouble, and you're never turning him to Him in the day of deliverance, you're always going to have this really shallow, like not a very meaningful relationship with Him. I mean, you think about your good, meaningful relationships, right? Your good friendships. You think about the highs and the lows, the peaks and the valleys. You're always seeking each other out. Why? Because you desire to be with each other. But have you ever had that, that, that friend or that person, or maybe you are that friend, like the only time they call you is when they need something. And now with caller ID, you're like, okay, all right, okay. What is it this time? What is it this time? Hey, how's it going? Good. So what'd you need? What? What do you mean, what do I need? Well, you only call me when you need something. What do you need? I just want to say hello. That's it. And I could really use $50 right now. Like, okay. But that's not the reason I called. Okay. Okay. And what I would tell you, like, you know, if you have a, if you have a, a friendship or a family member or anything like that, you'd realize those, those relationships are always just going to be surfacing. Because why? Because the only time you ever seek me out is when you have a need. But you never seek me out because you desire to be in relationship with me. And if all we're ever doing is seeking God out in the day of trouble and we're never coming to him in the day of deliverance to say thank you God or in the day where we don't, it's not the day of trouble or the day of deliverance, then we'll always have this very surfacey, shallow relationship with him. And that's not because of him, but that's because of us. And so he returns to say, oh Lord, it's in your strength that the king rejoices. It's in your salvation how greatly he exults. You have granted the desires of his heart. You have not withheld the request of his lips. And so what we looked at last week is that what, what the king was desiring was, was God's help and salvation in the day of trouble. It wasn't like, well, the king wanted all this stuff and you gave him everything he asked for. Every request he had, everything he wanted, you gave everything to him. That's not what the context of what it was said last week. Last week, the context was, God, I want you to help me. God, I want you to deliver me. God, I want you to support me. God, would you come to my aid? That's the desire of my heart. The desire of my heart is I need to be saved. And my desire is that you would be the one to save it. And then we come here, and then 21, it says, and that you, you have granted that. So often people read the text like this, and they think that God is like some sort of genie in the bottle, or like cosmic butler, or like cosmic Siri, is that he exists to fulfill our dreams and desires. But that's not why God exists. God doesn't just exist just to answer your prayers. It's interesting because sometimes when you pray and God either doesn't say anything, you think, well, maybe he doesn't hear me. Because I prayed for this. It's a desire of my heart. I want it so bad. And I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. Nothing happened. And so maybe God doesn't hear me. Or maybe worse, God, maybe God hears me and he doesn't care. Or maybe even worse than that is that He doesn't exist. Because why wouldn't a good, loving God give me the desires of my heart? He knows how much I want this thing. It's interesting. One of my beliefs about God, not just about me, but about you, is that he actually knows you. He knows me better than we know ourselves. 
Do you know he knows my desires more than he knows my desires, than I know my desires? He knows the desires of your heart, both good and bad. That's what tells us in Jeremiah 17, that the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who knows it but him? That actually God knows your desires greater than you know your own desires. We think that we're the authority of us. We are not the authority of us. God knows us better than we even know ourselves. And there actually have been times in my, in, my, in my prayer life where I've prayed to something like, God, would you fulfill this desire? And it's a, it's a God-honoring desire. Is it, God, would you fulfill this? I think this is of you. This is a desire of mine. I think this desire would bring you glory. And God's answer to me has been no. Why? He goes, because actually, although you think that would bring me the glory and you think that thing would fill the desire, even though it's a godly desire, you think it would fulfill that desire in you, but I'm telling you right now, it would not. And there's been other times where I pray for something. I go, God, here's my desire. God, would you fulfill this? Would you fulfill this? And here's a great way in which you could do that. And then God says, no, because it's not going to do that. But I'll tell you what will do that. Another prayer that you didn't pray that I'm going to answer. I think about Romans where it says that, that when we don't know what to pray or how to pray, that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. I picture like the Holy Spirit changing my prayer. Well, what he really meant was this. Like <laughs> he's praying for this over here, but really the desire that would be fulfilled would not be fulfilled by this, it would be fulfilled by, by this over here. And so he grants the desires of the heart. And so on the day of deliverance, do you come to God to thank him for the day of deliverance? Verse 3 through 6. For... You meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow upon him. For you make him the most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy, with the joy of your presence. And so not only did he deliver him from death, but he received rich blessings. In other words, like not only did he not, he did not die in shame, right, in the battlefield. He didn't die in shame. Instead, God has given him uh, honor in life. This is what it says. You've given me life. You have given, you have crowned me. And so it's one thing to be spared of a shameful death, is what I would say is like the deliverance. So it's one thing just to be delivered from death. It's another thing to be given honor in life. Do you know that like in this battle, the, the, the prayer could have been, God, thank you. I almost died back there, but by the skin of my teeth, you saved me. That's not the prayer. That's not the thanksgiving. It's God, not only did I not die in shame, you have given me life and honor. Not only have you delivered me, but you have given me your, as it says here, your rich blessings. God didn't even need to deliver, but even if he just delivered, he didn't even need to give the rich blessings. And this is what the king is saying. He's like, you delivered me from death and you gave me rich blessings. And the rich blessings is what we see here are both honor and life. I love this. The crown of fine gold. Now, I just like the crown. the crown of like decent gold. Like this is the good stuff. This is the crown of fine gold. It says that splendor and majesty you have bestowed upon him. The Bible speaks of God being the one who bestows honor. You ever think about that? That God is the one who bestows honor. 
It tells us in Psalm 23, it says that uh, you, have, you, have, you have made me a, a table in the presence of the, my enemies. In other words, you have honored me in the presence of my enemies. Have you ever thought about this idea that God wants to honor you? I mean, we think about God bringing honor and getting honor and being glorified, but do you ever think like, that God wants to bring you honor? And how do we, how do we wrestle? Because I'll say this, like, there's a desire in us that, 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 that we would receive some sort of honor. There's a desire in you that you would receive some sort of honor. Not necessarily be the center of attention because that would kill most of you guys. Like, so we're going we're gonna to honor you this morning. We're going to bring you up here. That would kill you. But this idea that we, that we, that we receive honor and that we live honorable lives, I think that's something we desire. And then how do we do that in, in, in a world in which is all about self-promotion. In a world that says, basically, if, if you don't seek your own honor, then nobody will. Seek your own honor, seek your own glory. Because if you don't, not only, like, you, you'll, well, you'll just be forgotten. And the great shame of this culture is then you become insignificant. And so you have to claw, scratch, steal, do whatever you need to do to get yours. Because, because if you don't, you will, you will be relegated into the place of ins- insignificance. And that's the great shame of the world. But what, the, what, what, what this tells us is that actually, is that actually no, no, the God, God is looking to honor you. It tells me a lot of things, but one of the things it tells me is that, is that you're not insignificant. And so he says, not only have you delivered me, but you have given me honor. Honor in the presence of of the enemies. And the blessing is that the honor has come from him. The life has come from him. I mean, look how active God is in in verses, uh, even three through six. It's, It's you meet him, you set the crown, you gave him life. It's through your salvation, you bestow all of this, the honor and the life is coming from God. And so, we think about this idea of, I think about grace and mercy, right? We hear grace and mercy thrown around a lot. Like, oh, it's grace and mercy. Maybe somebody says that in prayer. It's grace and mercy. God, give us your grace and mercy. But, but mercy says that we, we didn't get the thing that we deserve, Right? And grace says we get the very thing we don't deserve. So mercy would say, God, like we, we, like we think about like this, like uh, mercy says we, we don't want to get the thing we deserve. That's why somebody says, I'm going to throw myself on the mercy of the court. I know that I am due jail time, but I'm going to throw myself on the mercy of the court that the court would not give me what I deserve. But then grace comes another way and says, but actually I'm asking for something that I don't even deserve. And it's like there's like, we like probably in our, our terminology, we'd say, oh, there's a grace period. There's the due date, and you didn't even ask for this, right? But there is a, there's a grace period of 10 days before we're actually going to consider it late. I didn't ask for those 10 days. Well, yes, it's a grace period. Like, you didn't ask for it, but you got it. You, didn't, you did nothing for it. Everybody gets it. And so what we see here is that actually the king, not only is he given the mercy, he doesn't die in battle, but he's given the grace, which is, which is the blessings, which is the life and honor. 
And now he comes with all of that, and he comes back. And I love verse 6, when verse 6 says, You make him glad with the joy of what? The joy of your presence. The joy of your presence. But did you catch that? The joy is not the blessings. The joy is his presence. See, I think a lot of times what we do in our relationship with God, we think is the joy is in the blessings. The joy is in the gift. And the scriptures consistently are pointing us back to, no, the joy is not in the gifts. The joy is in the giver. And I love what he says here. And and the joy is in your presence. I love the honor. Great honors. Great life. Great deliverance. Great. All of that. Great. But I'll tell you what the joy is. The joy is your presence. I don't know about you, but when we've got a big family, and so whenever there's a birthday, there's a, there's a pack of, there's a, just a, a large amount of presents on the table. And then the, the, the presents, especially now that the kids are older, the, the presents come in like a parade. You know, they're just like, they're brought in one by one to the, to the birthday person. And as the birthday person opens, before they open the gift, you know the first thing they ask? Who's this from? Who's this from? I want to know if I should lower my expectations or raise them. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm teasing. Right? Because I want to know. I want to know where is this present coming from because, because that's going to say something to me. Because the gift matters, absolutely. But what I want to know is from whom does it come? And so in this, he's saying, the joy is actually your presence. Honor and life are great. But the joy is your presence. Verse 7. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. The king trusts. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. He delivered him. Let me back that up. He didn't deliver him because he trusted in the Lord. He he delivered him, and then he trusted in the Lord. And why I unpack that just a little bit? Because I think what happens sometimes people go, well, the reason why God hasn't delivered you is you you don't trust him enough. You don't trust him enough. You need to trust him more. Have more faith. Have more faith. And then he'll deliver you. And if you don't have enough faith, he won't deliver you. But if you, if you can just eke up over that faith threshold, then he'll deliver you. I got, but that's not even how God works. What I have found in my life is that, is that actually my trust flows out of the deliverance. There's some trust that goes in deliverance. God, I think you can do it. But I, there's, a, there's, a, there's a greater trust that flows out of the deliverance. He doesn't deliver me because I trust him. He delivers me, and then I trust him more. I mean, I trust God more now than I did 20 years ago. Why? Because I, I, I know more of him? Well, yeah, that's part of it. But because he's a more trustworthy God? No. Because he didn't deliver me back 20 years ago? No. Why? Because I came across a lot of days of trouble. And in my days of trouble, I turned to him. And when I turned to him, he delivered me. And he did that enough times. And my trust goes deeper and deeper. And the greater the trouble gets, 
the greater the deliverance gets, the deeper the trust goes. I trust God now more than I did 20 years ago. Why? Because the day of trouble was met with his deliverance. And day after day, time after time, that happens, and the trust grows. And you know that, right? I mean, you know, you, you've been in a day of trouble, and you're like, well, I don't know about this one, God. And God's like, well, what about the long list of ones that I've already done for you? Like, well, yeah, but those were totally different than this one. I don't know about this one, God. And then he delivers you out of that day of trouble, and you go, okay, now I know about that one. Now I know about that one. And I love, he says, the king, the king trusts, and he goes, I'm not going to be moved. I'm not going to be moved. And so what we see is that the, the king gets the grace and mercy. He gets the deliverance, and he gets, he gets the, the blessings. This is shaping up to be a really good psalm. If you read it this week, you know that there's a shift in play. Verse 8. Your hand will find all your enemies. Your right hand will find out all, find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Uh, though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. To which you read that and you go, wait a minute, what happened to like the blessings and honor, the grace, the mercy? Then we get to verse 8 and it shifts from the king and then all of a sudden it's talking about God and his enemies. And then we read passages like this and we go, well, this is why I don't like to read the Bible sometimes because he says stuff like this. Well, then what do we do with this? Does God have enemies? And if so, is this what he does to his enemies? I was thinking about this passage this week and just thinking about the world. You read any of the headlines on any of the websites. And thought to myself, I wonder, I wonder what God thinks about when he sees the world. You ever thought about that? Maybe you think about that this morning. Like, what is God? What do you think God thinks about when he think, when he sees the world? When he reads the headlines from the last last week, last two weeks, what stirs up inside of him? Do you think like he reflects upon the world and goes, "Yeah, now that's good." Well, I would hope not, right? I think you would hope not too. Like for, for us to look at the world and God to look at and God says that that yes, that, that angers me, we go good, because that, that angers me too. And you should not look at the why. We see him in Genesis 1 and 2 reflect upon the world and creation and go, that is good. But we go, you cannot reflect on, on any of sort of news stories. And he, by the way, he knows it deeper and more, more thoroughly than any of us do. And you go, you can, can you reflect on this and, and think that it's good? And God, if you could reflect on this world and go, it's good, you could not be trusted. Or does he reflect upon our world and think to himself, ah, to each their own. Whatever. Ah, tomato, tomato, you know, whatever they want to do, that's their thing. 
But then I would go, well, then he would be indifferent. If he thought it was good, he would be delusional. If he thought it was whatever, like to each their own, hey, that's their thing, that's not my thing, that's their business, not my business, he would be indifferent. And whether he was delusional or indifferent, neither one could you trust. Only a God, I think, that you would look upon the world and go, yes, yes, God, I'm actually glad that you're angry. It's interesting because people talk about the wrath of God as something we need to hide. I go, no, 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 actually, the wrath of God is one of the things that lets me know that I can trust him. By the way, his wrath is not rage. Rage is uncontrolled anger. His wrath is different. His wrath is intensified anger. And so his, when he looks at the world and is intensifiedly, intensely angry, I go, good. That means that you can be trusted. But then the question is, what does he do with that intensified anger? Well, we see here. We see a lot of judgment and justice. Because a good, loving God of grace and mercy comes with judgment and justice. I believe that means that he can be trusted. And so it's interesting here. The king receives grace and mercy. The enemies receive judgment and justice. I mean, look what's here, right? They will be found out. Everywhere they are, everywhere they go, they're going to be found out. You can't hide from them. This is what it it says. Like your hand will find all of your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. They cannot, they cannot hide from you. They're actively planning against God. And then the scriptures tell us, and they will not succeed. And then there's this whole thing about, about fire. The idea of fire in the Bible is often used as a metaphor for judgment. And so if you see fire, there's often like this idea of it, judgment. But why fire for judgment, right? And this idea of like, well, I hope, you know, you'll hear somebody say, well, I hope they burn in hell. This idea that there's hell and there's fire. But is that what God thinks? And I, th- I actually, I think that the fire has less to do with burning. In other words, like God isn't setting people ablaze because he likes to watch it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, I think I thought about like a, like a kid with a magnifying glass and an ant bringing weird joy to the child. Is that what God wants? No. Fire is seen as judgment. Fire is seen as judgment because fire is a purifier. I mean, it talks about how do, you, how do you purify metals? You put it through the fire. And so fire is not just about... It's because God's a sadistic God that loves to watch things and people burn. No, that's not what he likes at all. Hates that too. But what fire is and why fire is used as a judgment is because fire is used as a purifier. And so he says when, when they're sent through the fire, all that lacks worth is going to be burned up. But that you would survive the fire means that you have value. And that this justice and this judgment is total and complete. So not only will they not be able to hide, but this is, I think, what's behind the generation thing. 
It's like I'm going to, I'm going, not, not only is the judgment and the justice coming, I'm going to find them everywhere they are, but they're going to be total and complete. Time and space. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to wipe it out. And so it's really interesting when we get to, we get to 8 and 12, and we go, we get, we get justice and judgment. Like, one through seven's a lot of grace and mercy, which we love. Then eight and twelve come along, all we get is justice and judgment. And then verse 13 comes along. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing your, we will sing and praise your power. And so he talks about his grace and his mercy. He talks about, uh, for the king. Then he talks about his, his justice and his judgment for his enemies. And then he ends the whole thing by saying, and, and we're, we, we praise you, God, be exalted. If I'm going to be honest right now in the, the Christian church in America, what we do is we praise God for his grace and his mercy, but his justice and his judgment, we, we, we're, we are embarrassed by it. Well, let's not talk about that so much. Let's just kind of like, let's hide that away. Let's just, you know, let's talk more about his grace and his mercy. It's interesting, we, we find pride and, and, and glory in his grace and his mercy, but it's his justice and his judgment that we are somehow ashamed of, that we feel like it's like a, it's like a clause that they're going to, like somebody will find out once they become a Christian. And it's interesting because, because the world will actually say, but isn't, like, I read a God of, of justice and judgment here. What do you do with that, Christian? Like, well, you know, context, context. I go, well, no, it's actually, it's his judgment and justice, yes. It's his grace and his mercy with his justice and judgment, which is why he can be trusted, which is why he is glorified, which is why he's exalted, which is what the psalmist says. The king receives grace and mercy. The enemies receive justice and judgment. And so then we're left in this last place of, and so where do you find yourself? If the friends of God receive grace and mercy and the enemies of God find justice and judgment, where do you find yourself? Do you resonate with one through seven? Or do you resonate with eight through twelve? And what I find for most, even Christians, what they think is like, well, I'm some sort of verse in between. I don't know. Like, I, don't, I don't necessarily feel like I'm a friend of God, right? But honestly, I don't feel like I'm an enemy of him either. Which is interesting because I'll talk with non-Christians, and for the most part, if they're just if you're here, you're not you're not a Christian. I hear this a lot, which is like, well, I'm not an enemy of God. I'm, I'm not I'm not like actively opposing him. I'm not going against him. I'm just doing my own thing. And really, what the scriptures talk about is either you're a friend of God or you're an enemy of God. He's trying so hard. <laughs> and so, so we, have these, we have these two. And so, you know, technology, technology can be a, both a blessing and a curse. 
I know it. I know it. So, in this, <laughs> that's one way to do it too. That's, I, uh, so in this, so either you have, you're, you're either a friend of God or, or you're an enemy of God. And really what we would like to say is like, oh, we're, I think most of humanity is in between. We're kind of this indifferent with God. And you go, that's not actually one of the options we get in scriptures. And so then I'd ask you, like, well, are you a friend of God or an enemy of God? And that's a loaded question, isn't it? Because I think we just, well, I'd like to be a friend of God, but like, and because I read about the stuff of the enemy of God, and I go, that's, that's not good. And so one of the, the, the beautiful things that sometimes people think is convenient about Christianity is you go, oh, well, like the Christians, they, you just feel like, like God's on your side. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Christian, isn't it, isn't it, isn't it, isn't it convenient, Christian, that, that God gives you grace and mercy, but then gives justice and judgment to everybody else? Well, where do you get off saying those sorts of things? And by the way, this is a super side note, is that this is like when we see like God's enemies is that is that just because they're your enemy doesn't mean that they're God's enemy, by the way, right? And so you think, oh, my enemies. Like, no, 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 no. God's enemies. And so, Christian, where do you get off saying this? And where can you be so bold? You go, well, because this is what the scriptures teach us. Jesus actually called the disciples. He says, now I call you friends. Like, you're my friend. Some of like, because like, yeah, you, you, you have a part in this. And so then, this idea that Jesus then calls them friends, but calls them friends at a cost. This is out of Romans Chapter 5, verse 6. Listen to what it says. For a while, we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. I love that. People won't even die for a righteous person. Rarely. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one might dare even to die. So they're a good person, maybe. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified, made right, another way to say we've been made right by his blood, much more shall we be saved, salvation, by him from the wrath of God, the, judge, the judgment and the justice, his, his intensified anger. We are made right by his blood and, and by him as well, referring to Jesus, we are also saved from the judgment and the justice of God. Four, you hear this, verse 10? While we were enemies, while we were indifferent, while we were not friends, while we were not on speaking terms, while we were, you know, not, not, we were just acquaintances. No, while we were enemies, 
we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. And so we get to this and we go, why would we on the day of deliverance receive grace and mercy? Because those that are in Christ belong to Christ. And they are friends of God. And those who don't are enemies. And against the enemies come the judgment and the justice. But the beautiful thing about the cross and about Jesus is that what he did was he bore the judgment and the justice of the Father. The Son bore the judgment and the justice of the Father so that grace and mercy could be offered. That's why he's not just a scandalous God. If all he does is just go, you know what? You know what? Forget the judgment and justice. Grace and mercy for all. He's a God who cannot be trusted and a fraudulent God. But because he bore the judgment, because he bore the justice of God, in order to offer the grace and mercy, he's a God that can be trusted. And that's why we worship him for for both of those, for both his grace and his mercy and his judgment and justice. And so this king who said, not only did I... Not only did I not die the shameful death, but I was given the honorable life. Then what we realize with Jesus is that actually Jesus died the shameful death so that the honorable life can be offered to us. We can receive the blessing because he became the curse. We can receive his grace and mercy because he took on the judgment and the justice of God. That's why Christians can say that. If you're not in Christ, if you're not in Christ I would say then then who is going to bear the judgment and justice for you? My encouragement to you, if you're a Christian, that you would thank God for his week, for his deliverance of you. I think so often we just go like, yeah, God, like we're, we become kind of like, what have you done for me lately, kind of God? What have you done for me lately? Yeah, 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 but what have you done for me lately? Even maybe this week, if you're a Christian, you reflect on the day that you were you were an enemy of God, and you say, God, thank you for delivering me. God, thank you for saving me. Jesus, thank you for bearing for me the justice and the judgment of the Father so that I could receive the grace and mercy. Thank you for dying in shame so that I can live an honorable life. If you're not a Christian, I would encourage you to let what Jesus did for on the cross for you on the cross, bear your judgment and your justice so that grace and the grace and mercy of God can be extended to you. If that is you, I would love to pray with you. I'd love to, to walk you through that. And if you're not ready for that, that, that's okay, but I want you to think about, I want you to think about then who will bear your judgment and justice. You want the grace and mercy of God without his judgment and justice. 
And I'm telling you that Christ will give you both. It's not just about where we go to on the day of trouble that shows our faith, but it's about what we do with the day of deliverance that shows it as well. I pray that we would be a community that displays the faith of God not only in the day of trouble, but in our day of deliverance. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your power. We thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you for your justice and judgment. You are worthy. You are, you are good. You can be trusted because, because it, is, it is there. Because you, you see a broken world and, 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 and have decided to offer grace and mercy, but Jesus, that's by bearing the judgment and justice yourself. And so we thank you. We thank you that you are a God who has offered us salvation. You've offered us deliverance and blessings. We pray that we would live the honorable life and we just thank you that we can even live the honorable life, Jesus, because you died the shameful death. And God, I pray for those that are in here that would I would pray that they would move from enemy to friend. I pray that they would move from enemy to friend. That, that, that faith would lead them. That you would lead them. The Spirit, you would lead them from enemy to friend. That while they were still in, in their rebellion to you, while they're still in their rebellion to you, Jesus, you died taking the judgment and justice so that grace and mercy can be offered. We love you. We pray for these things in your name. Amen.